Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of heavenly forces will prepare for all peoples a rich feast, a feast of choice wines, of select foods rich in flavor, of choice wines well refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the veil that is veiling all peoples, the shroud enshrouding all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe tears from every face. He will remove people's disgrace from off the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. They will say on that day, look, this is our God for whom we have waited, and he has saved us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. So I am telling you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. You shouldn't live your life like the Gentiles anymore. They base their lives on pointless thinking, and they are in the dark in their reasoning. They are disconnected from God's life because of their ignorance and their closed hearts. They are people who lack all sense of right and wrong and who have turned themselves over to doing whatever feels good and to practicing every sort of corruption along with greed. But you didn't learn that sort of thing from Christ. Since you really listened to him and you were taught how the truth is in Jesus, change the former way of life that was part of the person you once were, corrupted by deceitful desires. Instead, renew the thinking of your mind by the Spirit and clothe yourself with a new person created according to God's image in justice and true holiness. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 22, 2 to 10. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding party for his son. He sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding party, but they did not want to come. Again, he sent other servants and said to them, tell those who have been invited, look, the meal is all prepared. I've butchered the oxen and fattened the cattle. Now everything is ready. Come to the wedding party. But they paid no attention and went away. Some to their fields, other to their businesses. The rest of them grabbed his servants, abused them, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his shoulders to destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his servants, the wedding party is prepared, but for those who were invited weren't worthy. Therefore, go to the roads on the edge of the town and invite everyone you find to the wedding party. Then those servants went to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The, parting was, the wedding party was full of guests. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and speak to us, your people. That through your word, would you speak to us that we might continually be conformed to the image of Jesus and that our lives and our worship might glorify our Father in heaven. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. If New Life is your home church, welcome home. If you are visiting with us this morning, thanks for being here. We're so glad that you came and joined us on this particular Sunday. 
then during the announcements, they mentioned that we have New Life Next immediately after this service. So if you are new or newer, we'd love for you to come and join us for lunch. Uh, so we have an opportunity to meet you and tell you a little bit more about life here at New Life Downtown. Also, hi to our friends that are watching online. It's good to see you kind of, however that sort of works uh, in the middle of those things. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is worshiping with one of our other congregations this morning. So New Life Church uh, has six congregations in the city. Uh, we're one of them here in downtown. Pastor Glenn is actually in Manitou today, uh, worshiping with our brothers and sisters over there, but he will be at New Life next, so you get a chance to meet him there if you are new or newer this morning. Uh, this is, as we mentioned several times, Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church. So happy birthday, everyone. Uh, yes, as Pastor Evan said during our huddle this morning, for 2,000 years old, you look good. Uh, it's taken a while, but you know, it's, the refining is happening. A uh, couple of things this morning as we celebrate this day, we're in the middle of a sermon series called The Kingdom is Like. We began this series right after Easter as we spent the time before Easter and Lent talking about uh, the kingdom of God through the lens of 1 Samuel. Now we've sort of switched over. We're spending time, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, and looking at these stories that Jesus told about the kingdom. Of saying, okay, Jesus, what is this kingdom that you're talking about? Jesus came to announce that the kingdom of God is here. And then he told all these parables, these stories, to help illustrate and to sort of spark our imagination around what does it mean to be a part of God's kingdom. Today we're continuing that series and we'll be in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. If you have a hand Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a digital one, you can scroll or you can just follow along on the screens as we begin. But Jesus said this, he responded by saying again in parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding party, a wedding feast, a wedding banquet for his son. At this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus is actually addressing this group of Jewish leaders who are openly questioning his authority. As Jesus is going around teaching and performing miracles and having all these conversations, they start to go, well, wait a minute, Jesus, what gives you the authority to do this? Any question about authority in the scriptures really is a question about identity, they're really asking, Jesus, who are you? And who or what gives you the rights? Who or what gives you the power to say these things and do these things? When I was a kid, the way that we would have worded it was, who died and made you king? All right, or who died and put you in charge? Who died and made you boss? This is particularly the conversation with me and my brothers. All right, it's like, no, you are not the boss of me. You are not in charge. And really, is there anything more particularly American than that phrase? Right? Who died and put you in charge? You know, as Americans, our ideal is the autonomous self. We want to have no one telling us what to do, how we should live, how we should act, what we should say, what we shouldn't say, what we should do, what we should not do. No, that we can decide that you stay in your own lane, I'll be my own boss, I'm the boss of me. So there's something particularly American about that. When we get to something like this, 
Jesus makes it really explicit when he's talking about the kingdom that there's a king. It's been implicit other places. He's talking about the kingdom, but then he compares it to a landowner or a father. Here, he makes it really explicit. The kingdom is like a king. Now, for us as Americans, that automatically makes us a little nervous, right? We are suspicious of monarchies. There's something about it that is deep in our blood. We are the sons and the daughters of liberty. We want our tea black or our coffee black and our tea in the harbor, right? That's where the tea goes. We don't need kings. We don't need queens. God save the queen. That's fine. But we're Americans. We don't need that. We are a democracy, rule of the people. We've got this figured out. So this automatically, we're like, ah, we're not sure what to do with the king kinds of things. And truth is, we're not sure what to do with the idea of kingdom. Kingdom is one of those terms that we use a lot in church, but we're not really sure what we're talking about all the time. Like, what is that? But if you think about it, for anything to be a kingdom, it has to have at least four things. And one of them is not a moat. I know that's disappointing, but it's not actually a requirement. No drawbridge is needed. What's needed is there has to be a ruler. For something to be called a kingdom, there has to be a king or a queen. There has to be a ruler. In addition to that, there has to be some place that they rule. A kingdom or queendom without land, without territory, without any sort of place, not really much of a kingdom at that point. So there has to be a ruler, there has to be a place, and there has to be people living in that place. It's not really much of a kingdom if there are no citizens within it. So you have to have a ruler, you have to have a place, you have to have people, and you have to have rule. There has to be some sort of rule of law, some laws, some ethic that say, this is what it means to be a part of this kingdom. This is what it looks like for the king to reign. This is what it looks like for the king to rule. This is what it means for us to be citizens under this king. There has to be a king. There has to be a place. There has to be people. And there has to be rule. The same is true in the kingdom of God. Then when the scriptures are talking about the kingdom of God, we can define it this way. The kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and in his presence. The kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and in his presence. This is what Jesus has in mind when he is talking about the kingdom. But as he tells this story, he says there's a king, which makes us a little nervous. But then he says, but this king throws parties. We're like, well, wait a minute. I mean, if we're going to have a king, let's have a party throwing king. That's our kind of king. Like I can get on board with this, a king that's going to throw festivals and feasts and all those things. Sign me up. I'm sure for Jesus' original hearers, they imagined sort of as Jesus was telling this parable, that verse in Isaiah 25 about the Lord being the one who throws a feast for his people, a feast with rich food and well-aged wine. And just stop and picture that for just a moment. The Lord setting this huge banquet table and all his people gathered around it. And they're grabbing these baskets 
that are heaping to overflowing with gluten-free crackers. And they're taking them and they're dipping them in a cup of non-alcoholic wine. I mean, this is a party. He's the party-throwing king. Like, ah, I can get on board with that. And not only is he a party-throwing king, but he's throwing a party for his son and for his son's wedding. I mean, that's our kind of party. Who doesn't like a wedding reception and a celebration around that? Case in point being a year ago when we had the last royal wedding with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. It was estimated that two billion people watched the wedding on TV or online. Two billion. That was actually down a billion people from his brother and his bride. You know, they dropped a whole billion there. Uh, But imagine that, two billion people, 29 million Americans, which doesn't seem like that much until you remember that it was 7 a.m. in New York. So like, you know, was that 4 a.m. in California? The people are getting up to watch a royal wedding. This huge party. But imagine that there's, there's actually only 600 people that were invited to the ceremony and only 200 people that were invited to the party afterwards. Can you imagine getting that invite? Invited into the royal wedding party. Now, if you're like, I don't like royals, just imagine a different scenario then. Like if kings and queens and princes and princes, that, you know, disrupts your soul. Uh, Just imagine some other party that you want to be a part of. They're invited in to this place. That's the setting that we have here for this parable is a royal wedding party. It goes on, it says this, it says, he sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding party, but they didn't want to come? What? Again, he sent other servants and said to them, okay, clearly they misunderstood. Like, we just need to send the message out one more time to tell them, to tell those who have been invited, look, the meal is all prepared. I've butchered the oxen and the fattened cattle. Now everything's ready. So come to the party. It is ready to go. In the ancient world, what would happen is that kings and other party-throwing patrons, when they were getting ready to have a party, they would make an announcement. Sort of like our version of a save the date, right? They would send out their servants to say, hey, two weeks on Saturday, my son is getting married. There's going to be a party. Come. So they send out kind of that save the date, let everybody know. Then when all the food was ready, they would send the servants back out and say, okay, everything's set, now come. So they'd let everybody know the day, but not the time. Because they wanted everything to be, you know, just right. And when everything was all prepared, they would send them back out. But that initial announcement that the party was coming gave everybody time to prepare. Like, okay, big event is happening Come, set it aside. We're, this is happening. We want to let and know. And it carried with it an expectation of attendance, especially when the invitation was from the king. To not come to a royal party that you've been invited to, to refuse a royal invitation was not in the ancient world considered rude. It was considered rebellious. It was a way of saying, nope, I'm not interested in you and your kingdom. 
It was an act of treason, of sedition. It was a sign of complete rebellion against the king. So it wasn't just rude. It was something deeper than that. So here in this parable, they receive the save the date. They get the message that the food's ready, but they don't want to come. So the king sends his servants out a third time. This time he's trying to coax them with the menu, right? But I've killed the oxen. And you're thinking, that's my lunch today. Like, that's, that's what I'm having. I'm going to the goose. They have an oxen special this week, and I'm diving in. But he's telling them, like, hey, the food is ready. Like, come and eat. And the text says this. It says, but they paid no attention. They went away. Some to their fields and others to their businesses. But the rest of them grabbed his servants, abused them, and killed them. It's a really interesting way to respond to a party invitation. A little extreme. So the king was angry, and he sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers and to set their city on fire. So you get this first group who are sort of indifferent to the king's invitation. And they are sort of passively aggressive, rebellious, right? It's like small children. I'm just going to ignore what you're saying right now and go about my other things. What's interesting here is what they go about doing is actually good things. They're not like, hey, I'm not coming because I'm going to go and commit crime. Right? They're going about their fields and their businesses. It's a way of sort of saying like, yeah, 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 thanks for the invite, but I've got more important things to do. Yeah, that, that's nice that, that this party's happening, that your, your son's getting married, that's great. But I've got other things that are more important right now. I've got other things that need my attention. I've got this deadline that I've got to take care of. I've got to get this crop into the field or this crop out of the field or I've got to take care of this with my business or I've got to do this with my family or I've got this thing that's happening over there. I've got this other good thing that I need to go and be dutiful about and I, I got to take care of this so I can't come. I'm just going to turn and go about doing this other stuff. I've got other things happening. Similar, I think, to what a lot of us do with Jesus at times. Like, yeah, 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 that whole like, Jesus thing, like, I'll get to that later. Right now, I've got this plan. I've got this priority. I've got this purpose. I've got this other thing that I need to do. And, you know, after I get this business off the ground, and after I have this relationship taken care of, and after this, and after that, and after I get married, or after I have kids, or after this, or after college, or after, yeah, I'll deal with that then. But right now, I've got other priorities. I've got other plans. I've got other things that I've got to do. But others in the story are not passive aggressive. They're just aggressive. They have a violent sort of response to the king's invitation. They kill his servants. And the king then sends out his soldiers rather than his servants to quell their rebellion. Within the original context of the parable, the initial invitees probably represent unbelieving Israel. Those who refuse to come. It's possible that the servants represent Israel's prophets and folks like John the Baptist, those who are sent out and then killed. And the judgment possibly alludes to what happens in 70 AD as the Romans come in and destroy the temple and sack Jerusalem. All that kind of caught up in there. The parable goes on though and says this. It says, then he said to his servants, the wedding party is prepared, but those who were invited weren't worthy. Therefore, go. Go to the roads on the edge of town. 
and invite everyone you find to the wedding party. Then those servants went to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. And the wedding party was full of guests. See, they reject, the whole group rejects the invitation, but the party's still on. The son is still getting married. The food is hot and ready and way better than Little Caesars. So it's like, we got to go. We got to fill this banquet hall up. It is ready. Let's go. And the original guest list is pronounced in this parable as unworthy. Unworthy. In Matthew's gospel, worthy and unworthy are not categories of character. They're categories related to responsiveness. That what makes someone worthy or unworthy in the gospel of Matthew is whether they or reject the invitation of Jesus. That's what makes someone worthy or unworthy. It's not their character, not how they've lived, not what they've done. They haven't sort of like, you know, raised their way up in the social stratus to be able to be one of those people who the king looks at and says, oh yeah, I want you at my party. They're not an influencer. They're not a business leader. They're not somebody who's sort of, you know, climbed the corporate ladder and now is in a place where they get invited into these kinds of things. It's not sort of a character or resume or those things that makes us worthy. It's our acceptance of the gospel. The acceptance. No one earns their invitation. It's an act of unmerited grace. It's a sign of the king's generosity, his benevolence, his love, his kindness, his care for his people. He says, hey, come, come. But they refuse. So the king says, therefore, go. It's the exact same words that begin the great commission at the end of Matthew. Therefore, go to all nations, preach the gospel, and make disciples of all of them. They go, he particularly tells them to go to the wrong side of the tracks, to go to the sketchy parts of town, the places where the zip codes where you don't want to buy a house, where you say, you know, I'm, I'm going to drive through that place, but I don't want to live there. Sends them to those places, to the places where it would be the least likely to find those who might be initially invited in our minds to the king's party. We find out that everyone's invited. So they go out and they invite everyone you find. And he says this, both evil and good. Again, it's not character that earns the invitation. It's God's grace. It says, hey, I'm having a party. Would you please come? There's oxen. Come. It's going to be great. And they come in and the place is packed. It's filled up. It's likely in this part of the parable that the servants here represent Jesus and the apostles, those who go out, and that these extra guests represent the believing Jews and particularly the Gentiles, those who are outside who've now been brought near. And we can take this first part of the parable and we can say this. I think this is what Jesus is sort of driving at in the first part of this parable is that the king has invited you into his kingdom. And the question Jesus poses is, will you come? The king has invited you into his kingdom. Will you come? See, no one misses the party because they weren't invited. 
They miss the party because they refuse to come. No one misses because they were not invited. No one misses because they didn't earn an invitation. The invitation is sent out to everyone. And the only people that miss the party are those who refuse to come. So the question I think Jesus says is, what is keeping you from coming? You know, in, even in our lives, what good things are keeping us from entering into the kingdom of God? Because the invitation of Jesus requires a reprioritization in our lives. To say, yep, you know, all of these good things? Nope, I'm going to the party. I'm going to be with the king and his son. At this point, the parable, there's really nothing like overly unsettling about this for us. Like, it's a bit confusing why people would respond to an invitation by killing the postmaster. Like, we don't quite get that. Like, oh, okay, that's a little disturbing, right? It's a confusing why people wouldn't come. It's disturbing that they would kill, and it's disturbing that, you know, there's the corresponding, you know, judgment from the king. But in general, we're looking at the parable, and we're like, okay, there's a king, but he's a party-throwing king, so that's our, that's our kind of king. And the party's a royal party? Yeah. I like this. And it seems so inclusive. Like everybody who wants to get in, gets in. So we're like, great. I got it. Like, accept the invitation. Jesus, I'm good. Thanks for the parable. But Jesus, like he does so many times, keeps talking when I wish he would stop. <laughs> right? It's like, okay, I've got to, there's a, some weird parts to this, but like, okay, I got it. Thank you. But instead he keeps Talking, he goes on and he says this. He says, now when the king came in, so the king enters into the party and he saw the guests, he spotted a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. So he says, tell me that's not dressed right for the party. And he said to him, he goes to him and he says, friends, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. And then the king said to his servants, tie his hands and feet and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. For many people are invited, but few people are chosen. Like, okay, well, wait, wait, what? 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 The king enters the party and he sees a guest who's not dressed properly which outside of the parable is actually just a deep fear of mine. <laughs> like, does anybody else, like, you get an invitation to something and, like, I turn to Sarah and like, what are you wearing? <laughs> Not that I have a lot of clothes to choose from. It's just like, but what's the appropriate attire? And she says, I don't know that my angst goes really high. So then I try to, like, very subtly find someone else who's been invited and like, so, what kind of party is this going to be? Like formal, semi-formal, casual, beach casual. Like what's the, what's, the le- what's the level here? And it's particularly nerve-wracking in Colorado because they like factor in the weather. It's June, everyone. Welcome to winter. <laughs> right? And you're like, what do I wear? Why not wear a church in the park? I got up in the morning. It was 65 and cloudy was the forecast. So I put on jeans and a long sleeve black shirt. And for those of you there, it was 85 and sunny the entire time at church in the park. There's something unsettling about not being dressed right for the occasion. So here we see the, the king sees this guy who's not dressed right, and he approaches him. And he calls him friend. And he asks him a question. He's like, how did you get in here without being dressed right? There's some kindness and gentleness and care here. He even gives him the benefit of the doubt. Like, hey, t- t- tell me what's happening. 
Talk to me about what's going on here. But the guest is speechless. He offers no response, no defense, no justification, nothing. And then the parable turns really dark. (laughs) It turns dark really quickly. And we're like, wait, what? This guest is judged just like the people who didn't even say yes to the invitation in the first place. He also gets jumped, but he's thrown out of the party and kicked out of the kingdom and into eternal judgment. Like, whoa, wait, who died and made this guy king? Right? What happened to the party throwing everybody's welcome king that we saw in the first part of the parable? We like that guy. What happened here? How we understand this parable really hinges on this idea of the wedding garment. What is this thing? What does this symbolize? What does this represent? And theologians have debated this for centuries. Like, concerned, like, what is this actually talking about? Within the context of Matthew's gospel, the wedding garment most likely represents righteousness or holiness. It represents, it symbolizes acting in accordance with Jesus' teachings. It represents doing God's will. It symbolizes being willing to live under God's rule, submitting to him as king, his rules for living. So what happens in this parable is that the guest accepts the invitation of the gospel, but refuses to conform to the demands of the gospel. This is what's happening for him. He says, you know, I want in on the party. I want all of the benefits. I want all of the joy of being in God's place and in God's presence and enjoying the banquet, but I don't want it to cost me anything. I don't want it to require anything. I don't want it to be anything that's going to be hard or difficult. I I just want to be able to just have it my way right away. All right? I want God's kingdom to be Burger King. I just drive through, get my food, go on. My way, right away. This is what I want. Frederick Bruner, the New Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, the wedding garment of personal righteousness was not necessary in order to be invited to the party. Remember, there's no, nobody earns their invitation. Both good and bad were invited. But the garment of personal righteousness is necessary to stay in the party. The improperly dressed guest represents all those who want to be in God's place and enjoy God's presence, but they don't want anything to do with God's rule. Want the benefits of the kingdom without the demands of it. The refusal to be clothed in righteousness what Paul called justice and true holiness. The refusal to be conformed into the image of Jesus is commensurate with rejecting the gospel in the first place. Same fate hits both groups. So maybe we should reword what we said earlier and say this. It says, the king has invited you into the kingdom. Will you come on his terms? Will you come on his terms? We said earlier that the kingdom of God is about God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and in his presence. This is fundamentally what the party looks like. 
It's God's place. It's his people. But it's his party. And he sets what this party is going to look like. See, for us, the kind of parties that we really like are the parties that are thrown for us. Right? And we love when people throw us a party. And then they come to us and say, hey, who do you want to come? We get to determine the guest list. And then they come to us and say, what do you want to be on the menu? And we get to determine that. What do you want the decorations to look like? And we get to determine that. What do you want the dress code to be? And we get to determine that. We like the kind of party where we get to say everything, but we're not responsible for it at all. Right? Somebody else plans it. Someone else pays for it. Someone else puts it on. Somebody else takes care of everything. We just show up. And everybody that we love is there. And all the food that we like is there. And we show up wearing what it is that we want to wear. That's our kind of party. That's not the kingdom. There's a king. And we are not him. And it's his party that we're invited into. So we cannot participate in God's kingdom without submitting to his rule. It is part of the deal. And ultimately in the parable, that's what it means to be chosen. The chosen are those who demonstrate it with their lives, who demonstrate their citizenship in God's kingdom by living under the reign of Jesus. This is fundamentally why discipleship is an absolute necessity in the life of a Christian. The discipleship is an absolute necessity. That discipleship really is what we're called into. We're called into the party to be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And this doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't just happen in a moment. It's a lifelong process of transformation that happens in us. Dallas Willard, the famous philosopher, defined discipleship this way. He said, discipleship is being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. It's being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. This is what discipleship is, and it is the task of the church. Jesus said, therefore, go into all nations, preach the gospel, and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's why it's the simple mission of new life. Our mission is to make disciples, just like Jesus told us to do. That's why our statement says we make disciples by calling people to worship, to connect, and to serve. So we don't gather together and worship just so like we can have this, like just for the sake of itself. No, gathering together in worship is we come together as God's people in God's presence to encounter the Holy Spirit teaching us through the scriptures, encounter it through prayer and worship and the table and saying, okay, Jesus, we want to be with you so we can learn from you how to live like you. We're coming to this place for the sake of our own discipleship. That's why the scriptures say, do not forsake the gathering together of God's people. It's actually an essential part of our life together to say, oh, we want to be a part of God's people so we come to the party so we can be with him and with his people and learn what it means to be with Jesus that we might learn how to live like him. It's the same reason that we connect in meal groups and courses and all the other things that we do around here, not just for the sake of connecting. Like you can connect with people for the sake of connecting in all sorts of places, but we connect for the sake of discipleship. 
We come together in meal groups and courses and emotionally healthy discipleship and alpha and other things. We come together to be with Jesus and his people so we might learn from him how to live like him. We're coming together for the sake of that. And the reason that we serve in the city, in the church and the world, the reason that we give sacrificially of our time and our energy and our gifts is not to like check off some box on our Christian resume. Or it's not just to make all the things happen that happen on a Sunday morning. The reason that we serve is because Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. So we want to follow in the way of Jesus, which means giving our lives away to other people. It means saying, yes, I want to know what it means to serve. Because when we serve, not only are the people we serving discipled, but we actually are as well. That it's part of our own discipleship. And it's the reason why we say it's so important to spend time with Jesus in prayer and in study and worship and in spiritual friendships and sharing honestly and confessing sin and asking for help for this and going to a counselor, seeking out a mentor, all of the things. Why? So we can be with Jesus and learn from him how to live like him. Discipleship is absolutely essential. So the question I think Jesus asks us is how are we responding? Sometimes when we think about discipleship, we talk about how we responded. Well, like 10 years ago, I did this thing with navigators. Or like, oh, when I was in college, I did this. And those things are great. But the invitation of the kingdom is today. How are you responding today? The invitation into the kingdom to be with Jesus to learn from him how to live like him. Because discipleship results in change. Sometimes when we're sharing our story, we talk about how we changed, which is huge. Some of us had miraculous sort of deliverance kind of things. Like we met Jesus and everything was really different. But the question of discipleship is also, how are you changing? What is different in our lives now than last month, than six months ago, than last year? What are the things that are continuing to change? And what are the things that Jesus wants to change? What are those things that we're still learning how to give over to him? The question is, how are we prioritizing that discipleship in our lives? How are we prioritizing our own discipleship? And how are we prioritizing other people's discipleship? For some of us, the task of discipleship now is actually stepping out and saying yes to discipling other people just like Jesus did, and find that that actually shapes us and transforms us in another way as well. Saying yes to being a mentor, saying yes to uh, getting involved in leadership here or somewhere else and saying, okay, you, come with me. Let me teach you what it means to follow Jesus. Follow me as I follow him. How are we prioritizing that? But here's the really, really, really good news in the middle of this. We sometimes think that discipleship is just about us and our efforts. So we're like, okay, Jesus, thanks for having me come to the party. Oh, I need wedding clothes. Let me go over here and just mm, muster everything I possibly can to like be righteous, to be holy, to figure this out. And then when I'm all like clothed and cleaned up, then I'll come back to you. Jesus said, no, 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 that is not how this works. This is Pentecost Sunday. So the king has invited you into his kingdom and he has given you his spirit. 
He has given you his spirit. It's actually his spirit that is is at work within us to change us and to shape us into the image and likeness of Jesus. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Resurrecting our character teaching us to live in a new way, setting us free from sin, setting us free from bondage. That is something he can do. He raised Jesus from the dead. He can raise us as well into new life through him. The spirit of God is at work in you, praying for you, interceding for you, helping you in your weakness. This is why Paul says, it's the spirit of God who transforms us into the image of Jesus from glory to glory to glory to glory. So we can look back in our lives, we can say, oh wait, look what has happened. It happens slowly. It happens subtly, sometimes dramatically. Sometimes we have moments of just incredible transformation. So many times we can look back and say, oh, I'm spending time with Jesus. And wow, I'm suddenly I'm more compassionate. I don't know what happened. I spent time with the compassionate one, more gentle, more kind, more generous, more sacrificial. They have more peace and more hope and more joy in my life and look back and see how the Spirit of God has worked slowly over time, transforming us. And then people start to look at us and go, wait, wait, wait a minute. What is going on with you? Right? What has happened to you? You're not the person that I knew last year. You're not the person I was in the frat with in college. You're not the woman I knew in high school. You're not the person that I knew at this point in spirit. See, sometimes we think the spirit empowering us for witness is just about big, dramatic, gifty kinds of things. But so much of the spirit empowering us is changing our lives, that our lives become a witness to the world, that Jesus is alive. He resurrects the dead, and you can see it in my own life. The king has invited you into his kingdom. Will you come on his terms? And the good news is, he has provided you with his spirits, which gives you everything you need to come to the party. He's the one who clothes us in righteousness. So we pray today that Holy Spirit of God, that you would fall afresh on us, that you'd melt us, that you'd mold us, that you'd fill us, and that you would use us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us.